This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. You know what? Uh, you can look at it that we got uh, actually three first-rounders back here. Um, I think it was uh, important for us to get a first-round pick back. Uh, we've got a young prospect in, in Adorati. And again, getting a 25-year-old uh, young player in uh, Antonio, Antonio uh, Bobilier back here that uh, uh, been playing uh, pretty consistent for uh, New York Islanders over the the last couple of years. I've seen him a lot uh, in my previous organization in the playoffs here. Um, like the details he plays with, uh, his tenacity, his puck hunting. Um, I think he will fit in well here uh, in our top six group uh, on the left side. Okay, that is uh, Patrick Galvin, general manager of the Vancouver Canucks, commenting on Atu Ratu, the first-round pick, and Anthony Bavillier. And here to talk about what the Maple Leafs should do with Alex Kerfoot and Pierre Engvall is Thomas Drance. How are you today, Drancer? Oh, I'm doing well, Jeff. How are you? Good. Sick of talking about the Canucks yet? You want to dip into the Leafs and Engvall Never. and what they should be looking for come trade deadline? And <laughs> it's, um, never. I'll, I'll, I know, never I, get sick of it. Never. <laughs> Let me, well, listen, it has been, I mean, this this regime has been a protein shake for, for Vancouver hockey media. It's great. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, listen, this, 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 I mean, this, we talked about Bruce Boudreaux being, you know, the, the slow march to the inevitable, and this has been a slow march to the inevitable as well. When it happened yesterday, and you first heard that it was the Islanders, you know, not the Hurricanes or the Bruins or the Kraken uh, that mm. ended up with Bo Horvat, what, what went through your mind right away, and what did you think when you when you heard the return? Well, so... The first thing that went through my mind was that's perfect for Vancouver in terms of a trading partner, right? The thing about getting a first-round pick from a Boston or a Carolina is you, you feel pretty confident that those are going to be in the 20s. Um, you yeah. know, buying a short position <laughs> on the New York Islanders is something, even yeah. with the addition of Bo Horvat, that, uh, that I think's got a lot of upside. I mean, if you think about dating back to the start of the 2020-2021 campaign – like the Islanders have a 519 point percentage. The Canucks have a 515 point percentage. And I go on the radio every day and say the Canucks should blow it up. They, they, they've effectively bought the, the, a first round pick from a team that's performed the way they have over the course of the past 130 games. That's brilliant. That's exactly the sort of asset that, sure, it's a long shot bet. I never want to bet against Ilya Sorokin. I love the New York Islanders defensive group, but man. Uh, the way that that team has performed the last couple of years, that, that to me feels like a, an asset that has a chance to, to sort of accelerate uh, the trajectory of, of what this sort of club needs in terms of an infusion of high-end talent. So I really like that aspect of the trade. You know, Aturatu is a nice piece. The Beauvillier part is where I sort of begin to struggle. And, you know, you look at comparable deals and, and this is sort of a big question that I have. And this isn't a Canucks question. This is like an overall NHL trade market. The next month question that I have coming out of this deal is, you know, you think about this return and it looks pretty classic, right? Player prospect pick makes sense. That's a classic deadline formulation. But when you think about players like Horvat who've been dealt at the deadline in years previous, you know, you think about especially guys who can play center or, or were centermen. You think about J.P. Peugeot. You think about Claude Giroux. You think about Matt Deshane. And, you know, the price 
that the Canucks received in exchange for Bo Horvat's pretty comparable to those, which I find a little bit confusing given that, you know, Horvat is third in the NHL in goal scored, right? I mean, he's significantly outproduced yeah. where all of those uh, other players were at. Additionally, in all three other cases, the teams were able to just net futures. They didn't have to take non-expiring money back, right? Like the Beauvillier commitment that the Canucks have taken back, and Beauvillier's been quietly available on the trade market for, you know, since the offseason, um, yep. you know, that, that, that sort of sets this apart. Like why, why did the Canucks want or have to take back all of this money? And that's sort of the big question that I have coming out of this is, Either in in this flat cap world where no teams have cap space, you know, taking back significant salary and not just significant like cap matching salary for the rest of this year, but a more significant commitment is either part of what sellers are going to have to consider doing if they want to get the sort of classic returns that we're used to seeing at the deadline. Either that or the Canucks have, in my opinion anyway, sort of whiffed on appropriately valuing the benefit of short-term cap space as part of the return that you're netting by dealing a player who you're not signing to an extension. And, and so, you know, th- that's sort of mm-hmm. the key question that I have coming out of the deal and, and how it differs from what we've seen comparable players go for over the last few seasons. You know, I, I the, the more that I think about it, the more I think that if it was going to be the Islanders, we should have seen Bavillier coming. We all recall mm. that Jim Rutherford press conference about, which was about f- five minutes ago, um, where he talked about <laughs> players between what was it, twenty-five and twenty-seven, or twenty-four and twenty-six. Yeah. You know, those that's that's the sweet spot of the bat. Like Anthony Bavillier is twenty-five years old, and mm-hmm. he was a high-scoring player with Shawinigan in the QMJHL. And yep. I think you and I talked about this. It's like though you know players that are producing that are twenty-five years old, teams don't let them go. Like, what you're going to get nope. is you're going to get players that you figure, okay, they're not maximizing their value with their team, call them reclamation projects or whatever, and the team is going to rehabilitate them, right? Whether it's, mm-hmm. in this case, you know, Anthony Bavillier or a Jimmy VC or something like that. So I, I look at Bavillier and I say to myself, okay, if I'm Vancouver, is my calculation this, that when he played in junior and you look at the skill set, Anthony Bavillier is someone that needs to gallop in order to maximize his skill set. Where with the Islanders under Barry Trotz, most specifically, you know, there were bungee cords attached between the bench and his hockey pants. And if he got too deep in the offensive zone, he would snap back. That's that's, That's Barry Trotz. Perhaps is the calculation here playing with Rick Tockett. Maybe he ends up galloping more and there's more offense that was never going to be actualized with the Islanders that could actualize here with the Canucks instead. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how much I like that bet given that, you know, it's not as if Rick Tockett coach teams have a reputation for letting their forwards gallop either, right? I I mean, this this Canucks environment tends to be high octane, but we'll we'll sort of see. Phil would be the one. Yeah, I, I, well, for sure. But that was, you know, you, you look at you look at the Arizona Coyotes forwards and, and their production under under talk. And, and granted, you know, I, I mean, that was such an odd situation in terms of how backhand heavy the construction of that roster was. I don't know how much of it was expediency versus philosophy. 
I suppose we'll see because he's really dealing with the opposite situation here. A team that's just so desperately overweight now on the wings, right? I mean, this is pretty wild, especially with Horvat leaving. You know, Vancouver's center depth is pretty iffy. Uh, the defense, we all know about it, <laughs> right? But in terms of expensive wingers, oh boy, they have the market corner. So, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see where it sort of, we'll yeah. see where it sort of goes. But I, I mean, I, I, I sort of look at that Bjorkstrand deal, right. And worry that, you know, even if Beauvillier gets back on track here, what's, what's the value on, you know, sort of like non-star wingers in the NHL right now? Like, I think the Canucks are in a tough spot if part of the goal here is to monetize or get off of some of their expensive wing commitments for, you know, players that for the most part, you know, are, are not even first line caliber, much less star caliber players, which you kind of have to be if you're going to net anything significant or even move them at all off of the wings. Does this mean that JT Miller is a center period? And the follow-up question is, what if he can't play center? Yeah. What the? Uh, I mean, this is, this is the fly in the ointment for me, Jeff. You know, I look at JT Miller and, you know, one thing that Miller has that makes him really special on the wing, but just makes him another guy when he plays center is he's really got a strong instinct to retain possession. Right. And as a winger, uh-huh. I think that's a pretty special trait, right? Like, uh, you know, you'll, you'll see him get these sort of breakout passes and he doesn't like his options and it's immediately regrouping. Like, he's really smart about managing the puck as a winger. But centermen are all wired that way, right? They're all wired that way. And, in fact, with the puck on his stick, Miller can be turnover prone, right? Like, when, when you give him a lot of the puck, you're going to get those moments, and we've seen them a lot this season, but we've also seen them throughout his Canucks tenure and throughout his NHL career where he can be a little bit wasteful. Like, for a centerman, he's wasteful. For a winger, his instinct to retain possessions high-end and helps him be a pretty effective two-way player. Uh, You know, I like Miller more as an F1 than an F3. I like him more when he's skating fast downhill trying to disrupt things than I do when he's sort of trying to pick his spots. Um... You know, I think all of the things he does well are more valuable on the wing, and all of the things that you're concerned about are accentuated when he plays center. And when you look at Vancouver's results this season, like a lot of people have said things like, JT Miller's been inconsistent this year, including the organization. They've said things like, JT Miller's been inconsistent this year. You know, his five-on-five production has fallen off on and on. But if you actually isolate it to the minutes that he's played without Pedersen and Horvat and the minutes that he's played with them, Right, which is sort of my proxy for is he playing center or wing? Um, he's been mm-hmm. his himself when he's played the wing. He's just struggled mightily at center this season. Now we all know that he was effective at center during the Bruce there it is bump uh, toward the end of last season. But you know, I, I think it's a very open question whether or not he can be a full time center or a solution at center for this team. I, I just think they're far better positioned to get actual value at least out of the front end of this extension that they've signed him to, if he's playing along the wall. How much, curious, I'm, I'm curious your answer on this one. How much now does this hand a hammer to Elias Pettersson and his agent, J.P. Barry? Mm. Now he's one year away from restricted free agency, but now that Horvat is not part of the equation, 
How much, uh, how much more emboldened is J.P. Barry in any negotiations for Elias Pedersen? Well, I mean, J.P. Barry should have been emboldened before. I, I, you know, honestly, I don't know that this tilts the leverage anymore in Pedersen's sort of direction simply because I think it was already there. Uh, this team has struggled so mightily. And if Pedersen's not going to commit long-term, you're really starting from scratch, period, right? So I think this was already an ex- existential uh, negotiation for a Canucks franchise that clearly is only going to begin to prioritize the long-term if they're, they do so kicking and screaming. Right? It's not a choice they're going to make themselves <laughs> given any other option. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I think that was already so, – I think it was already – They were already in a spot where I think internally it was viewed like we'll do what it takes to get Pedersen, uh, which, you know, is a sign of how much leverage Pedersen has. I'm sure that dynamic has has cranked up a bit, but I think we were already basically at volume level 10. Like, I think we were already dial turned to max. Um, So, you know, it's going to be a very interesting summer for the Canucks and Pedersen, particularly now that the captaincy has been vacated. Um, could be a, a wide-ranging conversation about what his future in Vancouver looks like when the two sides get down to brass tacks following the season. So who's most interesting? We'll, we'll end on this one. Who's most interesting to you now? I mean, you would look at it and say, okay, well, Luke Shen will probably go next. Um, mm-hmm. Elliot and I, before he came on, we're talking about Thatcher Demko and what the future could be there and you know other teams and what their levels of, of interest could be. I think we wonder about someone like Connor Garland uh, and what his future is with the Vancouver Canucks. Sure. Which player now becomes the most interesting player to Thomas Drance? Yeah, well, I mean, the Demko one, I think, is most fascinating from a big-picture perspective because if this team's dealing Demko, they can call it what they want, but you're rebuilding, right? I mean, the logic yeah. of what this team could do to become a playoff team in short order requires Demko to be, what, one of the five best puck stoppers in the NHL. And if you're waving the white flag on having a huge edge in net, I think you might as well be rebuilding, or I think you are rebuilding regardless of how you want to label it publicly to your fan base. However, Jeff, because I'm a massive, massive nerd, I think the most interesting player is Ethan Bear. I'm going to go a little bit off the board, right? Ethan Bear has played really well for this team. He's played top four minutes. He's got a $2.5 million qualifying offer, which is a little bit inconvenient, right? Because... This is a player who's building a pretty good arbitration case. And you'd imagine that the club is going to be, well, any club would be leery about sort of locking him up in an inefficient clip, considering what he's probably a four or five guy in terms of how he'd be viewed around the league. And and also probably internally, do they try and get an extension done early given his inordinate leverage and the, and the club, the premium that the club has to place, on addressing the right side of their defense. Uh, Beyond this season, right, Tyler Myers is the only healthy right-handed defenseman that this club has under contract. And Myers is on a long list of players that we know the Canucks would love to move if they could. So the Bear situation to me sort of looms large, particularly given the premium that this club has to, has to, absolutely must place on building a defense core that's, you know, at a level where the team at least has sort of the talent on the back end that's compatible with the act of winning in the NHL. 
That's been the biggest problem they've faced this season. It was the biggest problem they faced last season. It was the biggest problem they faced the year before, right? This, this defense is incompatible with the act of winning in the NHL. Um, how do you address that, given that even that sort of the bright spots are poised to become more expensive? That's sort of the situation that I'm most interested in seeing how this management group approaches. That's really the best answer. I never would have thought bear, but I'm sold. Um, listen, great stuff. Uh, I know that you, pro- you probably have only had a couple of hours of sleep, and there's none on the horizon because it's going to be one of those days again. Uh, listen, bud, always appreciate you taking time. You be well. We'll check back soon. Hey, thanks for having me, Jeff. Cheers. The great Thomas Strantz stopping by the program today talking about the Horvat deal to the Islanders. It's a whopper for both sides. Interesting point, too. Are these two teams not exactly maybe more identical than different? We'll start there with Greg Wyshynski from ESPN on a Tuesday edition of MVSW. Keep it here. Smart takes on the biggest stories in sports. The Fan Drive Time with Ben Ennis. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Okay, welcome back to the program. Quick one here. I want to um, make sure we get the random player of the day in because it's very important to get this one in today, specifically Matt Marchese. So Sunday afternoon, I got a DM from a gentleman by the name of Alan Moy. So uh, Alan appreciates the random player of the day. By the way, yes, I keep my DMs open. Um, you can request them that way, or you can um, you can send in at uh, jmshow at sportsnet.ca uh, your random player of the day, and we'll see if we get to it. So here's what Alan sent in on Sunday. Okay, random player of the day is now an addiction. I was going to write in Elmer Vasco, and then boom. So I randomly thought of Terry Harper, and boom again. Now it's becoming notes from my psychic journal. Red Volkswagens appear everywhere once mentioned. That is a very hip reference and a very cool pull. Uh, I will beat someone to Leo Boyven. So many great random players keep it coming. Okay, so from Prescott, Ontario, uh, Leo Boyven played 19 seasons in the NHL, uh, was originally signed by the Boston Bruins in 1949, traded to the Maple Leafs in one of the... And really a trade at that era was a trade for a lot of tough players. Like... Boyvin comes over to Toronto, or goes over to Toronto, rather, with Fern Flamin. Maddie, one day, I really hope someone requests Fern Flamin, nudge, nudge. Oh, they have. Who I think may have been the toughest player. Oh, do you have some Fern Flamins? We do. So, Fern, <laughs> Fern, I, be, I, I there's a few contenders in this one. I want to throw Orlin Kurtenbach into it. Maybe the toughest player, certainly of his generation, and maybe ever. Uh, in the history of the NHL. So he goes to Toronto with Fern Flamin, Phil Maloney, and Ken Smith. Another hard hitter goes the other way from Toronto to Boston in Bill Esnicki, who was a really hard hitter, and Vic Lynn, whose claim to fame was, at the time, he played for all six teams. Notice how I'm not calling them the original six, Maddie. All six teams in the NHL, the only player um, to do that, he also played with the Detroit Red Wings and the Minnesota North Stars and the Pittsburgh Penguins. And the the one thing before he got to Detroit, because he would always go at Gordie Howe really hard. Like he was a hard hitting defenseman, always went at Detroit really tough. 
um, and was welcomed by everyone with the Detroit Red Wings, whether it was Del Vecchio, whether it was Gordie Howe, and there was always that concern from Leo Boyvin. The one thing that we think of when we think of Leo Boyvin is the hip check. Maybe there was nobody better in the history of the NHL. Every now and then we see a good hip check in the National Hockey League. It's one that's really not encouraged because you can really throw yourself out of position. Uh, Keith Ballard, I would think, Matt, he might be the last player that we saw consistently throwing hip checks. I mean, every now and then you see, like, you know, I don't know, Radko Gudis throw, like, a good hip check. Every now and then it happens, and we all marvel at the hip check. Leo Boyvin was the master of it. He was a defensive defenseman, made it to the Hall of Fame in 1986. And why I loved him getting into the Hall of Fame in 1986 is we don't have defensive defensemen making it into the Hockey Hall of Fame. Adam Foote, I'm looking your direction. And when he was brought in by the Toronto Maple Leafs, this was in 1951. This is after Bill Barilko went missing on his infamous fishing trip after scoring that Stanley Cup winning goal. I can still see Rocket Richard's mouth wide open in the great Nat Tarofsky photo and Jerry McNeil falling backwards and Bill Rilko diving and, and scoring the goal. The Maple Leafs brought Leo Boyvin in specifically to replace Bill Barilko, um, although he, at the time, wanted to quit hockey and go work as a truck driver. Con Smythe talked him into playing one year with the Pittsburgh Hornets and then up to the NHL with the Toronto Maple Leafs. Um, legendary number 20 with the Boston Bruins, and he is a link uh, from Eddie Shore, uh, to Leo Boyvin, to Bobby Orr, to Brad Park, to what should have been Gord Kluzak, to Ray Bork, to Zdeno Chara, to maybe Charlie McAvoy enters into that equation. Uh, I always get a, a warm. We just lost Leo Boyvin uh, not that long ago as well from Prescott, Ontario. I always get that soap and warm water feeling when I think about him because the lost art of the hip check was perfected by Leo Boyvin, Maddie, What do you think of that? Yeah, and that was the first thing that came to my mind because I remember – so in playing hockey at, at one point, shockingly, I was a defenseman. Um, never saw my own end after that. But what I used to always try to do was perfect the art of the hip check. And I remember the first one that I landed, my dad told me, he said, do you, do you know who was the best at that? And I was like, no. I mean, oh, no who? way. And then he brought up Leo Boyvin. And that was where that was how I knew yeah. about the hip check was because my dad told me about him and, and the the famous hip checks that he used to that he used to throw. So I, I was aware of that. And you know, you talk about the rich history of, of the Bruins defense and, and the the, oh, the Hall of Famers that have gone through there. There is no other team that has that. Like it there is like I the Montreal Canadians are very good. They had, you know, they had Doug Harvey and they, they had Serge Savard and Larry Robinson and we can go down the list. But from the time of Eddie Shore to now, there is no team that has it like the Boston Bruins. Yeah. It's been an embarrassment of riches on the blue line for the Boston Bruins that has uh, never been in question and never been in doubt. And that link between Eddie Shore to Bobby Orr, Leo Boyvin. But again, I don't think he was ever, he was never an all-star I don't know that he ever got any consideration for the Norris Trophy, but I think everybody respected how important he was defensively to the Boston Bruins, and that's why he got in. And I just love that, and I think there should be more players that are like that, even though you don't have the counting stats to get in. 
just how defensively sound Boyvin was, and he's in the Hockey Hall of Fame, and rightfully so. So, Alan, thanks a lot for, send- thanks a lot for sending in Leo Boyvin, and Maddie, somewhere along the line, we'll talk about Fern Flamin. Uh, in the meantime, I'm off to Florida for the All-Star Weekend for a few days. Uh, Maddie, I'm sure, has a lot of things planned for you, so you're in good hands. Uh, I want to thank Matt Marchese, as always, for producing the program. Jen, you're awesome um, for making it look good on the Magic Eyeball. Jen Rolnick, Lance Kennedy for making it sound tasty. Elliot Friedman, Thomas Drantz, and Greg Wyshynski, thank you, thank you, thank you. We will talk to you next week on The Merrick Show, handled capably the next three days by Matt Marchese. Enjoy yourselves, be well, and enjoy the games tonight, a couple tomorrow, and then it's all-star. Enjoy. Enjoy.